I do uh, work as a pilot. That's what is. That's my trade. That's what I do. And it's kind of funny because when you're preparing a sermon, you don't. You're not always used to the timing and making sure you fit within the the actual scheduled allotted times and so on. And so I spent this week, you know, practicing my message to my co-pilot, and he was like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" It's like, no. It's a long flight from San Diego back to Chicago. Listen up. And, uh, and he was rolling his eyes at me. But either way, it's my privilege and I'm honored to be able to share what I've learned. And when I do get a chance to share, I think I get way more out of it uh, than even what I'm able to communicate because you spend so much time looking at it and reading it. So with that being said, uh, we are going to be speaking on Genesis 42, 43, and 44. Now, every time I've shared this message, including the ones in flight, <clears throat> it's gotten a little shorter. But last uh, service, it was uh, over. So bear with me as we try to move through this. We have a lot of material to cover. After I turn there, I'd like to just uh, bow for a quick word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and how it... Um, it continually points us to Jesus, even before Jesus existed. We thank you for your redemptive plan and what you've done for us, how you've forgiven us so much. Lord, we pray that uh, you would be glorified, your mercy would be shown, and that uh, your message would be uh, would passed on today. And I pray, Lord, if I say anything that I shouldn't say or that shouldn't be uh, retained, that people would just forget it. It wouldn't even make it to their ears. Lord, thank you for what you've done for all of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have uh, three chapters here. And it's the story where Joseph meets his brothers. And we have to kind of set the stage before we we go through it. I'm not going to read all three chapters. It it takes so long to read through those three chapters. That would be half the service. But we're going to take sections of it. And then I'm going to paraphrase sections. And we'll take other sections and we'll move on. But we need to set the stage beforehand. We've all been listening to these sermons on Genesis. And um, we remember Joseph's story. Joseph, 17 years old, he's enslaved. Well, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's brought to the land of Egypt. In the land of Egypt, he goes to Potiphar's house, falsely accused, back to jail. He then, through a series of events, rises to power in the jail gets shafted through a weird deal with a cupbearer, an interpretation of a dream, and then two years later, he is brought up out of the dungeon to the right hand of Pharaoh at the age of 30 years old. So 17 to 30, a ton has happened in this young man's life. And 30 years old is not very old to be in charge of the premier government slash country in the world. The dream that he had to interpret to Pharaoh, do you guys remember, said that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And where we're going to pick up today is when the famine began. So Joseph at this time is about 37 years old. 20 years has passed since his brothers have sold him into slavery. Now, we also got to remember in chapter 38 because chapter 38 is what happened to Judah. These are the two characters we're going to talk about. Joseph and Judah. And we're going to watch. It's going to be a character study of what happens to them through these three chapters to the end of 44. Now, when you think about Judah, remember, Pastor Ken had the, the uh, 
privilege of giving us this message. His life was a little bit different than Joseph's. You remember, he was a part of the group of brothers who when they saw him coming, I think Jared told us, they had nothing good to say about him. That's how much they hated him. When they saw him coming from a distance, they said, let's kill him. And he was part of that group. The only thing good we can say about Judah up to this point, from what I've read, is he said to his brothers, listen, he is our flesh and blood. Why don't we just sell him? Uh, that's the good thing we can say. And so he convinced his brother, he does seem to hold a little bit of a leadership role, even in his family early on. You can kind of read between the lines. But he says, let's just sell him. And so his brothers conceded. And our eyes were opened up to Reuben. I always thought Reuben was a good guy until Jared taught us earlier that, no, Reuben was a selfish guy. And we're going to see that through them in this passage as well. So what we're going to know is where we're going to start today in chapter 42, Judah is back with his brothers with Jacob because Judah had left, went to Canaan, married a Canaanite woman, had two wicked sons, slept with his daughter-in-law, impregnated her, but don't worry, he thought it, she was a prostitute. So, you know, he's got a wreck of a life, but then he turns around and he's back with Jacob, his father. This is where we start today. So that's the stage. Now bear with me here, follow along, we've got a lot of material to cover. Open up your Bibles to Genesis 42. The first section we're going to read is verses 1 through 5. Okay. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. That's how we know Judah was there, because he says ten of Joseph's brothers went down there to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So we know this. Judah was back. We also know that Benjamin is still the favorite. It's almost gotten worse now. We know that Jacob hasn't changed. He still plays favorites. And we also know that others are doing the same. This is a big famine. We got all kinds of foreign countries, Canaanites, who are going down to Egypt to buy grain. And so Jacob hears about it. And he's like, that's where we need to go. And others were doing the same thing. So they show up here at this. I'm going to paraphrase for a little bit. In Egypt. Now think about this. It's a large famine. Many people from different cultures and languages are showing up and Joseph is a busy man. He sits on a throne. You have to go into Mark's imagination every once in a while because I have to piece in some of this. He probably sits on a throne listening to people's case by case and deciding how he's going to disperse the resources. You realize this was not a welfare program. Joseph made Egypt one of the wealthiest nations on earth during this period of time. People showed up and he decided who deserved the grain and who didn't and then what it was going to cost. And he listened to them. And all of a sudden, up comes ten of his brothers. And he recognizes them. He recognizes them right away. Now, this, one of the pilots I flew with this week, as I'm telling him, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This makes no sense to me. Why would he not recognize, why would his brothers not recognize him? You've got to remember, Joseph is now sitting as a ruler in Egypt. He looks differently. They shave their faces. He's probably wearing ornate robes. He sits on a throne. He's in a total different 
picture than where he was before. Andrew has this massive beard right here. You guys have seen it. That's what a Hebrew would look like. <laughs> Those guys had giant beards. They were probably wearing uh, burlap-type, I don't know, robes. We know they weren't colorful because that one went to Joseph and was destroyed. <laughs> they look like shepherds. And so it's very easy for Joseph to look at him and go, I know my brothers. And his brothers were older. They don't change as much. Joseph went from the age of 17 to 37. He's not speaking to them in their tongue. He's using an interpreter. He looks like he belongs to a different culture. And they don't recognize him. So they show up to buy grain from him. And you know what he does right away? He's very harsh with them. He has servants. that They listen to him, judge daily and weekly about it. And he's harsh with them. He says over and over again that he calls them spies. And we're going to go to verse 14 to continue with the story. 42 verse 14. Joseph said to them, It's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of your number to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Uh, ironically, they threw him in a pit for three days, and now he's throwing them in a pit or dungeon for three days. Sometimes people think, man, Joseph is pretty hardcore. He's trying to get back at his brother. But he's not. He's testing him. This guy knows how to discern a liar. That's what his job is. He sits on a throne and he listens to everybody's sob story. No, no, no. That's baloney. Yep, you need some grain. I'll sell you that. No, no, no. That's what he does. He knows how to spot a liar. And he's putting him through the test. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that the words may be verified, and you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must get into an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. When I read that, you start to get a bit of a picture of uh, who Reuben is still. Reuben is still this guy who's like, I told you guys, you're, you shouldn't have done that. He's a he's kind of doesn't take responsibility for anything he's been involved in. He's the oldest child, and uh, we've kind of learned through this study that he is not what he was cracked up to be uh, when we look at his life. So, they agree. They load up the, the donkeys. They fill the grains. Joseph makes sure he puts the silver back in the grain. They start heading home. They head home, and they stop to get, uh, feed their animals at that first night. And they dig into the bags to feed their animals, and they find silver. And they're like, you've got to be kidding us. And their hearts are distraught. They can't believe it. They're like, what is going on? First, this guy is so harsh with us. He took Simeon. He put him in jail. I forgot to read that part, didn't I? While he was talking to them, he had Simeon bound, and he put him in jail. So they're leaving, going home without their brother. And now we have the silver back in our bags. And they get home. And they get home, and they explain the whole scenario to their dad. 
listen, Jacob, all of this stuff has happened. And he's listening to the story. But the only way we're going to be able to get Simeon out is if we go back with Benjamin and prove we're not spies. And that's the only way we're going to be able to get any more grain as well. And Jacob says, no way. Reuben actually pipes up in verse 37. Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And trust him to my care. And I will bring him back. I can't imagine being Jacob. I, I would, I'd be like, shut up, Reuben. Your ideas are so stupid. I, I, I'm going to entrust him to my care, and if you don't bring back my son, then I get to kill my grandsons? But you don't make any sense. But this is Reuben. It's not about him. He wants to keep himself from any pain and, and not be accountable for any of the uh, ramifications for any actions. So Jacob is like, no way. This guy has some serious issues. I'm not sending my sons back to Egypt to buy more grain. But eventually, the food they have runs out. And his back is against the wall, and he has no choice. So he says to his boys, go back down there and get some more grain. And what is, happens in 43, let's take a look at 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten, that is some loud rain. Now now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that had brought to them from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know that he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah says to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. I will bear the blame for you all my life. Judah has a little bit different response to his father. It's very personal. It's not how you can take my son's says, you can hold me personally responsible. I will vouch that I'm going to bring your son back to you. As it is, he said, if we hadn't delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. And so Israel, or Jacob, concedes. He says, okay, you guys can do it. But here's the plan. I want you to uh, bring some pistachios. Dan's a nut guy, valuable nut. We must have these in Canaan. We're going to bring pistachios to the guy. And honey. Luke's always telling me about special honey. Where you get the good honey. They're going to bring honey and pistachios down to him as extra gifts, as well as two times the silver and Benjamin. And that's the plan. So they load up their, their donkeys with their gifts, and they head back down. Now picture this. They're arriving once again in Egypt. Foreign land, foreign languages, foreign people. They walk into the city. There's probably 
Lots of people, like I said, you probably get in the line to go see Joseph, the guy who's going to tell you if you're going to get your grain or not and what it's going to cost. And they get pulled out of the line. Probably Joseph has a lot of servants out there in whatever, a courtyard. Remember, we're in Mark's imagination now. My imagination can get a little vivid. So all of a sudden, Joseph gets some guy, well, he's in the middle of a meeting, and he's like, hey, listen, those uh, Hebrew guys are back. It looks like they brought their brother. And he's like, excellent. Take him to my house, prepare a meal, cancel my afternoon appointments. This is going to take a while. And so, that's what they do. They take him back to his house. Now listen, these guys are scared. This is like when you go to a foreign country and you're going through the customs line and you've got your passport ready, you've got your kids' passports ready, you're all worried that you, you missed a stamp or something, or you're, and all of a sudden, they, some guy grabs you out of the line and says, no, 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 we're taking you over here. And you look back, no, I want to stay in that line. I don't want to go somewhere different. I don't, they know something's up and they become very afraid. They're like, this guy is, we're going to be slaves. He's going to kill us. Something bad's going to happen. The steward takes him back to his house and starts to prepare the meal. And they begin to actually tell the steward, listen, the silver that came in our, we brought it back. I don't know how I got in there. And he even says, don't worry about the silver. Your God gave you that silver. And so they come back to his house for a meal. Now, let's go to 43, verse 28. <clears throat> Joseph comes back for the meal. Little pleasantries are exchanged. How's your father? Is this your younger brother? And then, and then he talks here. 28. They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. He looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, and he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to eat. He went into his private room and he wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out controlling himself and he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate by, with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment when their portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. There's a few things I want to know. He gives special attention to Benjamin right off the bat. He can't eat with them. So picture this. He's eating at a table up here by himself because he's at a position of royalty that's so high he won't even eat with his own Egyptian servants. And he's especially not going to eat with these Hebrew guys. It's it's really odd that they're even at his house because he considers them disgusting. I'm not pointing at you because of your beard. <laughs> because they're shepherds, and it was detestable. It was detestable for Egyptians to associate with shepherds. So he's up by himself, and he can listen to his servants, but you know what? He also can listen to his brothers. He's in tune with their cultures. He knows the idiosyncrasies. He knows how his brothers act. He knows the language. He's watching them. And the last verse that we just read said, So they feasted and drank freely with him. What that means is they're sitting there, a group of brothers, one of them being treated much better than the others. Simeon's out of prison, and there was no animosity at that meal. All of us 
have had meals that were awkward. Where you're sitting there and you're just, I can't wait till this gets over. Where the kids are like, Dad is so mad, let's just get our dishes and throw them in the dishwasher and get away. Joseph has probably seen some meals like this. Matter of fact, you remember when his brothers were up around the fire, probably eating, and he was down in the pit pleading for his life? That was kind of an awkward situation. They wouldn't even let him be around the fire. You know, he's in a pit. But he can watch them. And when it says they ate and drank freely with him, it means they've changed. He goes, Benjamin is still uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, uh, he's treated better than the rest of his brother. He's his dad's favorite son. But he's watching, and his brothers don't seem to hold that same animosity towards him as they did Joseph. And he sees it. So Joseph tells them, here's where it gets interesting. I now know you're not spies. I'm going to send you on your way with your grain for your family. So he tells his steward, make sure you put that silver cup in my cup of divination. So you've got this cup that he's drinking out of, and the Egyptians think you look in the wine and you can see the future, which is ironic as he does kind of come with the truth. He finds the truth out by sticking his cup in Benjamin's bag. He sends them on their way. And then after they get out of town, he tells the steward, go pull them over and tell them that you're looking for my cup. And so... Verse, chapter 44, verse 11, the steward catches up with him and, and he says to them what he's going to do. And each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and he opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. You know, they tore their brother's clothes off and now they're tearing their own clothes because they know what's going to happen to them. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in. It's like Judah is leading the procession when he walks in there. And they threw themselves on the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. I know that was a lot of material to cover, but we needed to get a picture of the characters we're dealing with before we we went any further. Let's go to the next slide. When we look at a story like this, like we've been for the last few weeks, we look at Joseph very clearly as a victim, and we see him as a victim. Life has given him the raw end of the deal. His brothers have given him the raw end of the deal. His boss falsely accused him. His deal that he had with the cupbearer, listen, I'm going to, since I gave you this interpretation of your dream, when you get to Pharaoh, tell him my case and get me out of here. He is clearly a victim of of the circumstances that have happened to him. And you know what? He's been basically a righteous guy throughout the whole story. We look at Judah. He does not look like a victim. Judah's a bad guy. We look at his life and what he's done. He sat in this, this circle with his, with his uh, brothers and hated on his other brother. He willingly worked together with them to destroy his life, sold them into to slavery. Can you imagine selling your own sibling? I mean, we're starting to hear a lot about 
slavery trade and so on. But that's, that's pretty low. Then after he does this, he leaves his family and goes down to the land of Canaan. He's going to a place he shouldn't live, and he knows it. He marries a woman he shouldn't marry, a Canaanite woman. He shouldn't be doing that. He has wicked sons that were killed. And then we know Pastor Ken's message to us. He goes and sees a prostitute, uh, impregnates his daughter-in-law, and uh, basically comes to a, uh, uh, a spiritual awakening there, which we'll talk about later. But his life overall is characterized by evil. So here's my warning to all of us, because this is what I found very interesting when I was studying this. I was reading some things, and I was watching some videos on our culture. Because let's just pause for a moment, before I even go further. When you think of your life, when you're driving home from work, when you're mowing your lawn, when you're washing your dishes, and you picture your life, do you think of yourself as a victim or a tormentor? I know when I'm driving by myself, my mind usually goes to what a victim I am. I can't believe those people talked to me that way, treated me that way, acted that way to me. I can't believe my boss promoted that person over me. Usually. And then we go and we share it with other people as well. I think of myself as a victim. I would guess in a group this size that we had very few people, if they're honest with themselves, think of themselves as a tormentor. You know what? Our culture right now is a culture. I like what Jared said last week. He said in Romans 12, says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. That's our culture. Paul's saying, don't absorb your culture. Test it. See how it aligns with Scripture. Our culture right now is defined as a culture of victimhood. Let me give you an example. In the 1800s, we were a culture of honor. Our honor was very important to us. If you slighted me, even if I was just a perceived slight, it deserved me addressing it to the point where I'd slap you across your face and we're going to have pistols at dawn and then we're going we're to watch ten pages out like this and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to try to shoot you. That's how important my honor was to me. And that's how we dealt with slights. That was the 1800s. They went right into, into our, country, in our country. The old west guys... You know, they're all having, you know, you bump into a guy in a saloon, you spilled his whiskey, and he's like, that's it. You dishonor me. Let's get out there in the street where we're going to shoot each other. It's a strange culture. And we decided in the 1900s that that wasn't uh, the best way to solve. Probably lots of victims were getting shot just because the perpetrator was a better shot. So nothing was getting solved out of this. So we decided in the 1900s, I don't know how cultures start, the we people decided. And they, they, they changed things a little bit. We became a culture of dignity. Through most of the 1900s, it was almost below you to take offense to things. You know what I mean? It's like a slight? That's below me. I'm going to, I'm a position of dignity. I'm not even going to let things like that bother me. I remember coming home as a small child from elementary school crying about something and my mother saying, sticks and stones will break your bones but words will never hurt you, which wasn't true. They really hurt. But you know what? She wasn't telling me about words not hurting me. What she was is she was telling me my culture. You know, Mike, she'd say, Mark, you cannot let every offense bother you your whole life. Stop being a victim. Stand up straight and ignore it. I'm not saying that the culture of dignity is better or worse or anything, because all of our cultures have problems. But that was... 
the culture of dignity. But lately, really the last 20 years, our culture's really changed. Our culture's now changed to a culture of victimhood. It started a lot in universities, and what we have is we have people who claim that they're wrong all the time. But it's like the honor culture. The slightest slight, even a perceived slight, can be something very dishonorable that you need to address. But it's, but it's not like the honor culture where you're going to go to that person and address it directly. No, it, it's very passive-aggressive. I worked in business for 12 years before I was doing what I was doing now, and we'd have these organizational guys come in and tell, like, teach us about or dysfunction in organization, and we, every organization has lots of dysfunction. And he said, listen, the problems you guys have here, he was not from our company, he goes, it's not the aggressive people. Everyone's always like, that, aggressive, that VP, he's so aggressive, and he's trying to ramrod his plans, and that's the problem. He goes, no, no, it's the passive-aggressive. That's what causes a lot of problems. They're usually going the back door. When, when I love to talk sports, I love to talk to people about their kids and so on, you hear this a lot. He, my kid, he really deserves to be the quarterback. And I can't believe it's not happening. Uh, and you know what? I'm not going to even address the coach about it. I'm going to go tell the principal that he needs to address the coach. I can't believe the grade my kid got on that paper. When I was in school, you guys, and a lot of you this way was this way, uh, and I'm not saying I'm better than this. We all absorb our culture. Whether you're 70 years old or 16 years old, we slowly absorb our cultures and we claim victimhood. But when I was in school, my father was very much, our culture was very much a dignity culture. And you know what would happen if I came home complaining about a grade or not getting on a team or if I made a mistake at school? I was more scared of my dad than the principal. That was the difference. The dignity culture was different than this new we have. To give you an example, just imagine with me here. If Judah lived in our culture right now, and I were to take a microphone right after he'd just thrown his brother into a pit and sold him into uh, slavery, and I said, Judah, how does it feel to be a tormentor, a perpetrator in this situation while your brother, the victim, was he would jerk the mic out of my hand and say, listen, buddy, I am not a perpetrator. I'm a victim. Do you know what's happened in my life? My mother was forced into marriage. I'm like the fourth son. I get no inheritance. My dad never loved my mom. He doesn't love us. He spends all his time over at Rachel's tent. When he shoots a big stag, they have a celebration. He's like, oh, man, I just got this nice piece of venison. Let's have a celebration. And I can hear him partying next door in a tent. Keep in mind, we're in Mark's imagination again. He would claim victimhood, wouldn't he? He's got a list of things that have happened to him wrong. My dad never gave me a present. Joseph, he sat around the temp and dipped pistachios in honey and ate them while I was out working like a slave for my father, and he never loved me. That's how a victim would act. That's how he would act. So when we look at it in retrospect, it's easy for us to look at someone else's life and say, yep, Judah, you are a total tormentor. And Joseph, your life is so honorable. You are a victim. And I agree with those statements. But sometimes it's harder to see that within ourselves. And I think Judah would, if he lived in our culture, he'd have a hard time seeing it as well. So don't conform to your culture. Recognize that each of us do have a, a, a role to play in it. Now, that's a huge introduction to finally get to our message, right? So, where we're going to talk about today is 
where these guys ended up in the process of repenting and becoming sanctified. And so let's talk about these two guys. Let's go to the next slide. Spiritual awakening. I took this term from Pastor Ken. Do you guys remember in chapter 38 when Pastor Ken was talking about Judah and his life and Judah had gone down and he did all those awful things and he found out that his daughter-in-law Tamar was pregnant and he said, she needs to be burned to death. That's what the law says. And then Tamar hands over the staff, or it wasn't her, she probably sent them, and the cord, and he realizes that he is the one who impregnated her. And what does he say? She is more righteous than me. You know what he's saying here? He's not saying, Tamar, you don't deserve to be burned to death. The law said she deserves to be burned to death. What he's saying is, I deserve more than to be burned to death. I deserve less than death. I am worthless. Pastor Ken said he had a spiritual awakening, and I believe it, because from this point on, we see Judah act differently. So Judah realizes that he has hit rock bottom. You know what? I've heard some people's stories out here. I know you. We've all, we're a family. We know each other's backstory. We know what's happened. We know how we ended up here. Some of us had to hit rock bottom before we finally came to an end of ourselves and said, I got nothing left. I don't know how I got myself here, but my eyes have finally been opened to who I really am. I'm less than dirt. That's how how it is for some of us, and we realize that. And Judah had that eye-opening experience. And we know in chapter 44, something changed. His daughter-in-law had twins that said he never was with her again physically. And he took his daughter-in-law and his twins and they moved back to Jacob because he's on this next journey. Well, he had a spiritual awakening. Do you know Jesus said he's called us to death a lot? When you start reading Jesus' words in the New Testament, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. He's called us to die. Pastor Chris was telling me about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Listen, I'm going to go way too long. I've got to stop some of these illustrations. We're going to move on. So, the process side of it. Some of us didn't have this instantaneous eye-opening, turn-around, hit-rock-bottom moment. Those are always the spectacular testimonies you're hearing, and you're like, man, I wish I had a testimony like that. That's unbelievable. My testimony, I don't really know. And you're trying to figure out how God's working in your life. Joseph, we know, is a righteous man. He has nothing evil said about him in this story. There's only three people in the Bible who haven't had nothing evil said about him, according to one commentator I was listening to. Joseph, Daniel, and Jonathan. He's a righteous man. His life is characterized by righteousness. But do you think he had to have an eye-opening, spiritual awakening? He did. Some of you, your lives would be characterized by righteousness. People look at your life and say, he's an obedient kid. He's been a righteous person through his life. Now, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here, but I, w- I want to show you what makes me think this. If you were to look in Genesis 37, 6 through 7, and I'm not going to make us turn to all these things. These are the dreams. We're going to talk about the sets of dreams. Joseph had two sets of dreams as a 17-year-old. He interpreted two more sets of dreams as a 28-year-old. And he interpreted two more sets of dreams as a 30-year-old. And I want you to watch how he responds to these. And if we didn't have these to compare, we, we might not be able to note this. 
Jared, when he spoke to us about this, he said, uh, we kind of fluffed it off when Joseph came out and he tells about his dreams, the sheaths. We're all putting these uh, sheaths together out in the fields and brothers, all yours, bowed down to mine. It's weird. And, and then the same thing with the stars. All, these, all your stars and the sun and moon bowed down to mine. It was so weird. But he's like, let me tell you my dreams, guys. Let me tell you my dreams. And I think... Jared said, you know, it's a little bit of a lack of maturity maybe there. We don't want to be too hard on Joseph. His life is characterized by righteousness, right? But we don't want to be too hard on him. It seems like, but there's a little pride there. Listen to this dream I have. I hope you can see it through my brightly covered jacket. Don't let that distract you. He's a little bit proud. So he gets shafted a few times, thrown in some pits. Life is hard on him. Life's been hard on us right? He's had a few down moments. And all of a sudden, he ends up in jail, trying to figure out a way out, and two more guys come to him with dreams, and he's excited. The cupbearer and the baker, and they show up, and he says, God's the interpreter of dreams. Tell me your dream. And I look at it the first time, many times I've read this passage. Oh, he's just What's wrong with that? But I'm noticing some difference there. He's saying, God's the interpreter of dreams. Tell me your dreams. It's like a partnership now. Me and God, we're going to help you. We're going to get this figured out. It's like a partnership that they've worked out. 50-50. You have to go with me a little bit because I am interpreting some things with a little bit of leeway. But what pulls it together to me what made me really realize that he's changed through this process is when you go to Genesis 41, 16. Go back a few chapters with me real quick. Genesis 41, 16. Let's start in 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. He's like, you, 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 you. And this is Joseph's chance, you guys. He tried to work his magic through the cupbearer, gave him the message, you know, just tell Pharaoh this, this and that, how I've been mistreated, and then I'll get out of here. That didn't work. Cupbearer didn't mention anything. So now he's got one-on-one time with the boss, and he has an opportunity to show him his special skill, who he is. And what is the first words out of Joseph's mouth? I cannot do it. Wait, wait. We went from, listen to my dream, to listen to God and me, to... I can't do it. Listen to just God. He says, I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph had a spiritual awakening, folks. He had to suffer much to get there. And his eyes were open to who he was. He wasn't perfect, he was righteous. He's been a picture of Christ in many messages. But he was a man. We all have pride in our life, and it's what stops us from opening our eyes to what Christ has done for us. It's our pride. I have it. I've got lots of pride. I'm always dealing with it. Ask my wife. Our pride is what limits us. And Joseph had to have that pride driven out of him. And you know what? how it was driven out? Through pain. Pain is what drives out your pride. They had to both have spiritual awakenings. Two guys, one righteous, 
One scum of the earth. Had to have their pride driven out. Let's go to the next slide. They had to have an acceptance of God's sovereignty. Now, the first one is we're going to talk about Judah. He's, let's, talk, let's just look at these pieces of Scripture real quick. 42, 21. This is him and all his brothers. 42, verse 21. Remember, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. See, God gives natural consequences. He sets them up. And sometimes when they come to our lives, we need to recognize that came from God's sovereign design. We hear a lot of sob stories sometimes, and it's funny, I want to tell people, do you think maybe some of your decisions led to all these pits that you're in? Because most of us don't see it like, man, I'm a victim of this and this and this and that. But we don't take personal responsibility for it. But these guys are looking back at their life, and they're looking at the natural consequences of maybe God even supernaturally punishing them for what they did wrong. And there's a sovereignty that they're recognizing there. It goes even further here in verse 28, 42, verse 28. Their hearts sank, and they, this is when they had found the silver in their sack, and they turned to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? So they're recognizing, Judah's recognizing, that God is sovereign. In 44, 16, the last chapter that we're going to be studying before we end here, it is, he says when he shows up at Joseph after they've all been convicted, he comes in there and he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. He's showing up knowing his brother did not steal a silver cup. And he still says to Joseph, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. He's basically saying, God is sovereign. You know, Joseph had a a perspective like this. By the time he got crushed to the point where he was raised up to the right hand of the Pharaoh, he realized, looking back, and this is the only time I'm going to creep into your area, he realized, looking back at his life, he said, hey, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He even, God even takes evil things and evil people and turns us around through his sovereign plan and purpose. Some of the pains and misery you have in your life, God allowed them to happen, to change you. I know my own stories. I know some of your stories. Joseph had to come to a point where he was no longer, and I don't know if he was, this is Mark's imagination, bitter, frustrated, or trying to manipulate a situation because of all of this wrongdoing that's happened to him undeservedly. And he had to come to a point where he says, God is doing this to me to conform me into something he can use. Do you realize all this Old Testament, God constantly is showing us how he's conforming us? That's what he wants us. He's trying to conform these people to be like Jesus before they've even met Jesus. He's trying to conform us to be like Jesus. God's conforming us. So let's move on. Because this is where, when we finally become conformed, we become sanctified. This is where I find this very interesting. This is what gets me excited. Sanctification in the most simplest form is just becoming like Jesus. That's what it means. Every time we hear, we're like, yeah, we need to become sanctified. It means we need to become like Jesus. Both of these guys became like Jesus. But the one I really want to touch on is Judah, because we spend most of our time talking about Joseph, all the stories from childhood. I want to talk about Judah. 
Judah, in chapter 44, gives the longest speech in this story. He gets more quote time in one area than anyone else. And it's interesting. So in chapter 44, verse 16, Judah says to his brother, just like he said, we just covered, God has uncovered your silver and guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We offer ourselves, and the one to have it was found to have the cup. You realize that there was a time in the future that came, and Jesus was at a point where he was so humbled, he said, I don't want to deal with this pain, Lord, that's coming to me. He's sitting, he's sitting in, a, in a garden praying. He says, but not my will, yours. And Judah's in the same spot. He's not going to defend himself. He's like, we're now my Lord's slaves. I'm not going to defend. I will do what you ask. I have nothing to stand on there. Judah is becoming sanctified. It, goes, it gets better. In verse 30, he's still giving his speech. And through this speech, he's constantly talking about his father. My father, my father, my father. In verse 30, he says, <clears throat> So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that he isn't there, he will die. He's telling Joseph, Mark's imagination, my father, who I love very much, is very attached to this boy, this spoiled brat. He loves him like you would not believe. And I want them to be able to have that relationship. Jesus hung on a cross and said, Father, I know how much you love these spoiled brats. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I want you to have a relationship with them. I'm willing to sacrifice myself. In verse 33, the very end of Judah's long speech, he says, Now then, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. I'll be, I'm giving up my life, he's basically saying. I will be your servant. Jesus did the same thing. He stood on that cross and said he could remove himself at any moment. He could defend himself in many ways. And he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm giving my life up at this moment. Take it. For these people. And Judah's doing the same thing for his brothers. And he, he could have been a victim and said, I rightfully deserve to be treated better. My father was, no. He said, I'm giving up my life for my brothers, for my father. Man, what an example of sanctification. Paul, in Philippians 2, it's one of my favorite passages, he tells us to be sanctified like this. He tells us to think of each other that way, especially us here in the body. He says, consider Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he took on the form of a man, and he became a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Paul asked us to do. And that's what the Holy Spirit was asking Judah to do, and he did it. 
And God looked down and smiled. Consider Christ Jesus. This is what's even more interesting. Go ahead and go to the next slide. I love this part. Because the more I read this, my eyes were opened up. Because Joseph has been our superstar our whole lives in this story. And rightfully so. He is a picture of Christ. And he became sanctified and obedient and humbled. In Philippians 2.5, it says, After Jesus gave up himself, there's the word therefore. It says, Therefore God raised him up to the right hand of the Father. You know what? Joseph, this is what we've heard many times in many sermons, was raised up to the right hand of the Father. It was a picture of God's mercy and grace. And that's why we talk about it. Joseph was raised up out of a pit, and he was sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's a picture of Jesus. We never hear a whole lot about, about Judah. I've never heard anything like this before. He says, right after he raised him up to the right hand of the Father, there's another verse that says, he gave Jesus the name above all names. And it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. You see, Judah, I don't know how much honor he received here on earth. Probably went and lived in the land of Goshen with his sins and his past. But he did obey God and he was sanctified. But picture this. In a time yet to happen in the future, Revelation 5.5 5 says, John, you remember John? Jesus' best friend. He goes on the island of Patmos. He gets caught in a vision. He writes the whole book of Revelation while he's in this vision. While he's in the island of Patmos, he gets transcended in some weird vision to heaven. And he's up there, and he's distraught with pain because he's looking at this scenario going on where there's a, a scroll with seals on it, and no one can open it. And he says, he's weeping. And an elder comes to him and says, don't weep. Look over there. You see him? That's the lamb who was slain. Now here's what I find very interesting. I think, Mark's imagination, that Joseph and Judah and Leah and Rachel and Jacob are in heaven. And I think that this event will happen in the future and they will all see it. I think they're going to be sitting there and if you can get chills down your spine in heaven, Leah's going to get them, and Judah will. Because right after he says the lamb was slain, he's going to say the lion of Judah, he can do it. What kind of honor is that? That's unbelievable. God chose a scumbag and raised him up and gave him a name like no other. He tied it right to Jesus because he loves to show his mercy. I would love that. I bet if those guys were in heaven chit-chatting, and I know they don't get jealous in heaven, and Joseph and Judah were talking, and Joseph said, hey, would you, have, would you trade? I mean, I mean, I got to ride in the fanciest vehicles, chariots. I had the most beautiful wife. I had more money than I can spend. Would you trade what you just received there if you could have had a life like mine on earth? He said, no way. No way. God gave me an incredible honor. He wants 
to honor us that way too. When we humble ourselves, repent, and become sanctified.